I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103 in your Bible. This week we come to Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving is a context within which we live. Thanksgiving may change some elements of what we say or what we do, but when one boils Thanksgiving down to its essence, not the holiday, by the way, but the deportment, we find from the Word of God that anything of virtue, that any life context within which God draws us, whether it be in an earthly perspective, positive or negative, whether it be something that makes us happy or makes us sad, that anything that's done into which God brings us, anything that's done in the context of virtue can also be done in the context of thanksgiving. And indeed, everything that we do in this life, we are called to do in thanksgiving. So it is that thankfulness is a mindset, which like other virtues, such as joy and such as peace, it's not actually dependent upon the circumstances within which you find yourself, but rather dependent upon the God who directs those circumstances. And this is a framework that is rooted in the conviction that God doesn't waste trouble on us. Rooted in the conviction that God is. And that He is in control. And that everything He brings into my life is an extension of His faithfulness and His sovereignty. This Thursday is Thanksgiving, and it should be for us a very important day. Memorials are important. And this memorial, perhaps more than most, because it is intended to draw our minds outside of ourselves and root them on that which we have been blessed with. Now, I know that Thanksgiving is losing that flavor in the world around us. Uh, Thanksgiving was the last holdout of the Christian holidays that did not have a a, a deeply worldly influence until uh, Black Friday really started to become a thing. And the mindset of being thankful for what I have becomes the mindset of coveting what I don't. But it need not be so among us. So we have this memorial coming up. I don't know all the ins and outs of how your year has been for many of you. But I do know that God wants you to be thankful. And this morning, we're going to go to Psalm 103 to talk about this. This evening, we'll we'll be in the Psalms again as we continue talking about Thanksgiving. And this Psalm of David is a reflection on various contexts of God's goodness. And this morning, the context within which we are going to reflect our Thanksgiving will be primarily rooted in the spiritual. And then this evening, the message is going to be a little bit more rooted in the physical. So you're there in Psalm 103. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 103 say this. Bless the Lord, excuse me, Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Before I get started, you notice I, I, I initially just started reading from my Bible and it starts with bless the Lord. Do take note that a Psalm of David and what you see there in the text prior to Verse number one, depending on which Bible you have, you may have a comment, which is probably in italics, and then you'll see something like a Psalm of David, or for Psalm 102, it says a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poured out his complaint. That's in the Hebrew. That's in your Bible. That's inspired scripture as well. If they have a little comment, if, you're, if your Bible adds commentary, of course, that's not inspired. But a Psalm of David, that is actually in the Hebrew text. And, and, and so we read this Psalm. 
beginning in verses one and two, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. As is so often the case within the Psalms, David calls upon his soul to bless the Lord. The idea of blessing the Lord is is not the, the idea of some liturgical blessing, but rather it carries the concept of worship, of adoration, or of thanksgiving. To praise God, to adore God, and to reflect unto God the glory that is due unto his name. And David calls upon all that is within him. He says, all that is within me, bless God's holy name. All that is within me, don't forget God's benefits. Don't forget all the ways that God has been good to me. And that is the theme of this psalm. Soul, David speaking to himself, David calling unto self-examination and self-exhortation. Don't forget all the ways that God has been good to you. You know, we humans have a unique capacity to remember the bad and kind of gloss over the good, don't we? If, you've, if you have a track record of buying things online, and particularly if you have a track record of reading reviews, one of the things we understand is that there's far more, if, if, if something bad happens with a product, you're far more likely to review it than if something good happens, right? Uh, the, the, the typical idea uh, says if, if somebody likes your product, they'll tell 10 people. If somebody hates your product, they'll tell 100 people, right? And that concept is very human. The idea that the things that stick out in our mind the most are the things that are, are somewhat negative. People are far more likely to remember if they had a bad experience with something than if they had a good experience with something. A good experience is expected, in a manner of speaking. But a bad experience sticks out like a sore thumb. It sits atop our recollection, and so we're more vocal about it. The same can be said about our circumstances. We have a tendency as humans to overlook the things that God has given to us that are going very well because it's just life. That's the context of life. Things are going good. But then when things go wrong or when things aren't what we'd expect, we have a tendency to bubble those up to the top and to lose perspective on life as a whole. And David seeks to counteract this tendency within himself with an exhortation to his own soul that he would not forget or overlook all of God's benefits. Verses three through five, he says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. We find here a list of five attributes of the Lord's faithfulness to which David exhorts his soul to bless the Lord. That in the midst of any troubles, that in the times of distress, general or specific. Yet David finds these things unto which to exhort his soul unto thankfulness. We'll walk through them together. First, he says in verse 3, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. There is a difference in the scripture between the word sin, iniquity, and transgression. To sin literally means in the Bible to miss the mark. It's the idea of missing the mark of the character of God or the will of God, perhaps better described to miss the mark of faith faithfulness to, our, to, to the, the Word of God and to its understanding of God and His expectations for us. So that's the idea of sin. In, in the Greek, it literally means to miss the mark. 
The idea of iniquity is, is talks about a bending or a twisting. So iniquity is to take God's design, to take God's instructions, or to take God's instructions and to bend them or to twist them, to pervert them in our actions or our words. And so we take something that God has said and we say, well, that's what God said. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist it to mean something else so that I can feel good about myself while simultaneously not doing what God has called me to do. Uh, maybe following the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, any of those sorts of things. Uh, the idea of bending or twisting, that's iniquity. And transgression describes intentional rebellion. To transgress is you know what God says, you know what he expects, and you are directly walking contrary to it, right? So sin is kind of missing the mark of God's character, God's will, missing the mark of faith. Iniquity is a bending or a twisting. Transgression is purposeful rebellion. And here we find David used the word iniquities here. Of course, that's not the essential focus. The essential focus is not that David committed iniquities. The essential focus here is that God has forgiven them. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Is there any truth more wonderful than the transcendent truth that God forgives? That the holy, righteous, omnipotent God loves us so much that he made a way for us to be forgiven. A forgiveness we could never deserve, a forgiveness we could never earn, but a forgiveness that has been extended to all men and applied to those who by grace, through faith, come to the cross of Christ for mercy through believing on the name of Jesus Christ. So that all who believe, who receive the finished work of Jesus Christ on the, de- uh, on the cross, his death and his victorious resurrection will receive Forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, judicial release from the guilt of my sin, practical salvation from the power of sin, spiritual cleansing from the shame of my sin, and one day even freedom from the very presence of sin. Thank God for that. That's worthy of our thanksgiving this morning. The gospel is a whosoever will call for anyone to accept this gift. And for we who are in Christ, for we who have benefited from so great salvation, you have every reason to bless the Lord. Life may not always be easy. You may experience a number of sorrows, a number of trials, be they emotional problems, relationship problems, health problems, financial problems, circumstantial problems of any type. But we can echo the sentiment so beautifully expressed by Horatio Spafford, When he wrote that hymn, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that can lift us to thanksgiving. This echoes what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. He says, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a blessed truth. That regardless of what's happening in your life today, regardless of the material, regardless of the the temporal, if you know Christ is your Savior, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This persuasion, this confidence rests upon the one who throughout all of life's days 
is faithful. The confidence of the one who has already secured our eternity through his son, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He forgives our iniquities. Thus, we should bless the Lord. Second half of verse three says, who healeth all thy diseases. The psalmist then lists God not only as a forgiver of iniquities, but as a healer of diseases. Now, there are a couple of different interpretive possibilities here. We find in here a parallelism that could be paralleling iniquities with diseases so that they're speaking of the same thing. We'd call uh, um, that a, um, a synonymous parallelism in the Hebrew, that the idea of iniquities and the idea of diseases are speaking of the same idea, the thoughts being in parallel. But we could also read this literally, that God forgives iniquity as a representation of spiritual illness and that God forgives diseases as a representation of physical illness showing that God's goodness and control is not just over the realm of the spirit, but that his control is also over the realm of the physical. That God is not just in control of my spiritual eternity, but that God has his hands upon my every day. That God is in control of my every day. That God's faithfulness is over the temporal and the material, just as it is over the spiritual. What a blessed assurance it is to know that it is God who takes care of my days. What a blessed assurance it is to know that God holds the ultimate control over my circumstances so that I don't have to live in fear of the unknown. I don't have to live in fear of unknown possibilities because God's in control of those unknowns. God already knows those unknowns. I don't have to live in fear of possible illnesses because God is in control of those. God knows those. I don't have to live in fear of the day of my death, because God knows that day. God has already seen that day. He's anticipated that day. See, I don't need to know all of those unknowns because I know the one who knows these things. And I know that he loves me. We continue in verse four with another human fear. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. The idea of diseases, perhaps speaking of illnesses, destruction, speaking perhaps of violence. You know, now in both of these cases, in the case of health and the case of violence, the Lord is not, certainly not saying that these things never come upon the follower of God, never come upon the follower of Christ. We know that difficult circumstances, uh, sorrows, a material lack, that these things are real possibilities for followers of Christ. There's nothing in God's word that tells us bad things won't happen to the godly or bad things won't happen to the righteous. Indeed, much of the scriptures would contradict such a claim. But what we do find in scripture is that when God sees fit to allow difficult circumstances to enter into the life of a faithful believer, he does so either because he's bringing a trial into our lives that he knows we can handle, or it's coming into our lives as a consequence of our sin that God never intended for us. But one way or another, we know that the scriptures testify that it doesn't need to overcome us. It doesn't need to leave us feeling alone and helpless. It calls us instead to flee to the one who is over all of these things, to flee to the rock that is our salvation. We have full confidence that what has transpired has been allowed by a loving God and we rejoice in the manifold times and ways that God heals and God delivers from destruction and that God has been good to us and we flee to him for that peace. Fourth here in verse four, 
He says, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Not too many weeks ago, we journeyed over to Psalm 124. And in Psalm 124, the psalm extolled God's goodness, the goodness of the Lord. Effectively saying in verse 1, if it had not been for the Lord, where would we be? And we contemplated that together. I believe it was on a Sunday night in Jeremiah 52. If it had not been for the Lord, where would you be? If God had not at some point stepped in and intervened in your life, where would you be? And that's quite a thought, is it not? If not for the grace of God, where might you be today? And we find glimmers of this same sentiment here, that God crowns us with loving kindness and with tender mercies. The extension of God's gracious hand in the lives of his children is beyond evident, is it not? You may not be having a good week. It may not have been a very good month for you. It may not have been a very good year for you. But is not the extension of God's goodness, his hand of love, evident in your life? It's all around us. For those of us who are in Christ, it's within us. And once we know it, once we know it's there, you cannot but see the whole of our lives within the context of its presence. Thus call yourself, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. David wrote in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. David acknowledges what we call here the omnipresence and the omnipotence of God. The omnipresence means that he is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And the omnipotence is that God is all-powerful. What a joy rests in the heart of the follower of Christ who fully realizes that God is not only everywhere, but that he is all-powerful. That their loving God has directed his omnipotence and his omnipresence unto you in loving kindness and in tender mercies that the abundant and limitless resources of God are utilized in his goodness, in his greatness, and in his faithfulness for your best good. Such wonderful realities might cause us to echo the words that David writes in Psalm 139, just one verse prior to where we picked up in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. If you attempt to contemplate these things too deeply, you'll just kind of get a brain bruise (laughs) and a heart. How can I contemplate a loving God, a faithful God, an all-powerful, omnipresent God who is dedicating his resources, though I don't know why and don't understand it, to me? I can't truly comprehend that. But you know what I can do? I can be thankful for it. I can bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, with all that is within me, I can bless his holy name. One final direct attribute that David gives here, he says, uh, as he exhorts his soul to bless the Lord in verse 5, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Satisfaction can be difficult to come by in any day and age. In this particular age, we, we find ourselves in a very discontented culture, don't we? Always looking for that which we don't have. 
always wanting that unto which we have not attained. And yet in the Lord, the Bible says we can be satisfied. As David would write in Psalm 84, verse 11, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And with all of these phrases, this one as well, it's not intended to promise us health and wealth. That you're discontent because you don't have that thing and you're discontent because you want this thing and you're, you're, you're never going to be happy until you get those things. Certainly that's not the, the context within which the Christian operates. It's not a promise of health and of wealth, but rather that as we follow the Lord, we begin to love what He loves and hate what we hate. We draw closer to Him as with any relationship. As you draw closer to the person, you begin to pick up their corks and their features, right? You begin to love what they love. You begin to hate what they hate. You find a unity And it's the same with the Lord. As we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, the Lord will add unto us those things that are are His, are are His delight and desire to add, and we will find within ourselves utmost contentment in that which He has given to us. Satisfaction. We'll find ourselves resting in total satisfaction of all that God has chosen to give us in His timing, satisfied with our daily bread, satisfied with our material provision, satisfied with our place in this world, and having all things necessary for life and godliness according to His merciful hand. And that causes us to bless the Lord. And all of this, the verse says, that thy youth is renewed so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle's. We find this very similar to the phrase in Isaiah 40, verse 31, where Isaiah wrote, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. The idea here is the same. We we see in both of these verses the allusion to this idea of uh, strength being renewed or, or having strength like eagles that those whose expectation rests not upon the material things of this world, but upon the Lord. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him, the psalmist said. For those whose expectation rests upon the Lord, the Lord will abound unto them in all things necessary, renew their strength, invigorate their spirit unto contentment, unto joy, and into a state of mind by which we live in the context of thanksgiving. We're back in Psalm 103, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He maketh known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. David then appeals to history. It's important that we understand history. We were talking in Sunday school this morning a little bit about history. And it's within the context of history that we see the, the trail of God's faithfulness, the breadcrumbs of God's faithfulness, that we trace that cord from beginning to end of all of God's goodness. And when we forget about history and we try to reinvent the wheel of God's faithfulness, it's still going to be there. But we're going to have some days of difficulty. And yet here David looks back upon God's goodness in the days of Moses, God's goodness in the days of the Exodus, And he appeals to the account of the Exodus to prove his next point, that God is an avenger of the oppressed and that those who are treated wrongfully have an advocate with the Lord. So whatever circumstances were were floating through David's mind as he wrote this psalm, many of the psalms tell us this one does not, 
David is thinking about moments of oppression, of difficulty, where the powerful prey upon the weak, where there is an imbalance in justice. And as David thinks of these things, even within this, his mind is brought to a place of blessing. His mind is brought to a place of thanksgiving because an indelible element of God's character spanning every generation and every context is that God is on the side of the oppressed. And that not being just for the righteously oppressed, the righteous who are oppressed is what I mean, but even the unrighteous who are oppressed, God's character in this area, God's desire toward the innocent and toward the oppressed is so strong that even the unrighteous who are oppressed, even the unrighteous who are wronged innocently have an advocate with the Lord. Now, as it relates to the righteous, we have any number of passages we could turn to to see that the Lord is on the side of the righteous who are oppressed. First uh, Peter 2, verse 14 says, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Then it goes on to say in verse 20, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Among those who suffer for righteousness' sake, the Bible says God is a stalwart advocate. The most obvious example of such honor is found in Jesus Christ himself, is it not? That Jesus Christ bore oppression of, of, uh, in, in his innocence even unto death. And the Bible says that unto death he bore this and yet God highly exalted him. And one day, of course, his death will be avenged upon the unbelieving world. But so deep is God's advocacy for the innocent. So deep is God's care for those who are oppressed wrongly. So abundant is God's favor upon those that are wronged that the wise King Solomon warns us in Proverbs 24, verse 17 and 18, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Solomon exhorts the reader not to rejoice over the fall or the stumble even of your enemy, over an oppressor, because the heart of God is so eager toward the plight of the oppressed, that it may be that through your rejoicing in the misfortune of your enemy, God might turn his mercy toward your enemy because God's heart rests with the oppressed, with the downtrodden, with the poor, with the innocent. And as verse 7 expressed, the clearest case in point is found in the Exodus. Perhaps David's mind as he wrote this moved toward Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Contemplate this in the broader context of David using it, calling his soul to bless the Lord. God says, I know their sorrows. I have seen their pain. Have you ever been in a tough place? Place of sorrow, a place of difficulty, a place of oppression, and you just feel alone. Like nobody understands. God looked down at Israel and Egypt and heard the cries of their oppression and he says, I know their sorrows. My eyes have been open to it. I'm listening. 
this mercy, this love, this compassion, it did not end with Israel, though. It extends to all. We see that in Psalm 103. We see David taking the example, the history of of the Exodus, and he's saying, this is for me too. That just as God heard them, that just as God saw them, that just as God made known his ways unto Moses, executed righteousness and judgment for the oppressed in the days of the Exodus, so too he will do to me today. Therefore, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Verses 8 and 9. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. These are great verses, are they not? Our Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, quick to forgive. He won't always chide, the text says. The idea is that he won't always contend over man's failings. And it gets even better in verses 10 through 12. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Notice we see the word sin, iniquity, and transgression here. Among those who understand the depths of man's sinful state, the severity of man's natural separation from God due to our sinfulness. Can these words be any more beautiful? We've sinned. You've sinned. I've sinned. Because you have sinned, because I have sinned, because we have offended a holy God's righteous character, we have been separated from God. We are separated from fellowship with God so that a holy God cannot have fellowship with our unrighteous hearts. And yet God, who loves us so much, because of that love, has sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross. His Son who knew no sin. His Son who never once was separated from from fellowship with God. Who never once bore sin. And yet He sent that One to die on the cross. And the Bible says that on the cross, He the Father made Him the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus bore our Sin bore our shame, bore that debt so that we could be forgiven. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And through that act of merciful compassion, of substitutionary love, God is just to remove from us our transgressions, As far as the east is from the west, the east never touches the west, right? If you go east, you're never going to come to the point where you've hit west. You have to turn around to go west, right? The east goes one way, the west goes the other. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. So great is His mercy toward those who have rested their hope in Him. Now, of course, that's not for everyone. The provision has been made. For everyone. The sin has been paid for everyone. And yet only those who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior will receive that forgiveness. 
so that the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you've done that, then this verse is for you. That as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed your transgressions from you. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never submitted yourself to the reality that you're a sinner, that you're separated from God, that you can't earn your way to God, you can't work your way to God, you can't buy your way to God, there's no amount of good things that can undo the bad things that you've done. There's no amount of effort that can make you earn favor with God because you can't because you're a sinner. You've already been separated. But that Jesus Christ has earned the favor for you. Jesus Christ has purchased the debt for you. And if you will accept that favor, that debt, if you will accept that Jesus did that for you, you will be saved. If you've never done that, would you make today the day that you humble yourself before the cross of Jesus Christ and you accept that Jesus did for you what you cannot do for yourself and you put your faith in Christ? I mentioned just a moment ago that the significance of God's actions here are fully comprehended only among those who have received that gift. You know, we live in a society that has sought to conform God to our own image, thus lessening in our minds the essential reality of God's holiness. When people think of God, because they've conformed God to their own image, they don't think of God's holiness because God, generally speaking in society, the people that have a concept of God, they have a God that accepts everything that they, they want to do and understands their good intentions, right? But David entertained no such confusion as he continues. He speaks about this God who has shown mercy and compassion, who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. He speaks about this God who has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He speaks about this God who has not dealt with us in a manner in accordance with the way we've dealt with him. And yet... He continues in verses 13 and 14. He says, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. But David makes no bones about the fact that, that this is not equalizing us with God, that God is not, he's not overlooking our sin. He's forgiving our sin. Our Lord, like a loving father, is pitiful. The idea there meaning full of pity, right? Not that he's pitiful, as the way we'd use it today. Oh, that's pitiful. No, it means full of pity. He's full of pity. He's full of compassion for the weakness in our own nature. Full of mercy for the undeniability, the undeniable reality of our flesh. Look, God knows that you're a sinner. And this is important too. The reason why Jesus had to die is because you're a sinner, Right? Don't make the mistake of thinking you can clean yourself up to come to God. You come to God to be cleaned up. God knows you're a sinner. You don't have to hide that from him. You can't. We already saw that in Psalm 139, 7 through 10, right? You're a sinner. The point of coming to God is for him to fix you, for him to clean you up. He knows that which we struggle with because of our sin nature. He knows that this flesh is full of sin. Paul calls it the body of this death. I long in my spirit to serve the Lord with all that is in me, but within my flesh dwelleth no good thing. God knows this. He is pitiful. He is merciful. 
He is patient. He knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. And you know what? That too is worth thanking God for. It's a tremendous, tremendous blessing. It's a wonderful reality that God died for you at your worst, not at your best. That, as Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That every single, that, that, that no one is beyond hope. Praise God for this. This is cause for tremendous thanksgiving. Verses 15 through 18. As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. The place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Man's days are short. Like the grass, we grow green in our season, and in our season we wither away. But God's mercy, God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. From beginning to end. No beginning, no end, really, is what's being said there. Our flesh dies with our body. Our sin nature will, will, will die, will leave us at the moment that our bodies go into the ground, at the moment that our spirit leaves our body. But toward those that love him, toward those that fear him, God's mercy extends to you forever. One day this battle with sin will cease. That's not today, Lord willing, for any of us. But one day this battle will cease. Until that day, we still are recipients of God's great mercies to those who remember the Lord's ways, to those that take up their cross and follow their Savior. Our favor rooted not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of the one who died for us. As David would say in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Psalm, Psalm 103 finishes in verses 19 through 22. David writes, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his words. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The Lord is a great king. He rules above all. None can contest him. None can stand against him. He is above all. He is over all. And yet, he stoops to loving me. And yet, though made of dust, though utterly sinful, he loves me. He loves you. And for that, I bless the Lord. For that, I am thankful. And David calls here for the angels, the hosts of heaven, to, to, to bless the Lord. That even those in, who excel in strength and obey his word, 
as David extols the Lord's mercy, as David extols the Lord's forgiveness, as David extols the Lord's greatness, he says, angels, bless the Lord. He calls for the ministering hosts. Quite possibly, David is speaking toward those who would take this hymn that he's written. He's writing a psalm here, right? A song. And he'd give it to the singers in the temple and they'd sing it in the temple or in the tabernacle. Wouldn't be the temple yet. And perhaps it's them who he's speaking of here. He says, all ye as hosts, ye ministers of his. Maybe it's still speaking of the angels. That's possible. Or it could be speaking of those earthly ministers who are singing this song. You bless the Lord, all ye his hosts that do his pleasure. Then he says, all his works, all the created order, all his works in all places of his dominion, which is everywhere. Bless the Lord. Everything that is, bless the Lord. And then finally back to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And this naturally leads us to consider our own condition on this Sunday morning before Thanksgiving. We speak this morning of the unchanging nature of God's grace. That which Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, when he says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, literally made us alive together, with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It is this mercy, it is this mercy that comes from a God who was so rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, hath reached out to us through his son Jesus Christ, and who has elevated us from the gutter of the sin in which we lived to a seat at the king's table by grace through faith. that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his kindness toward us through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. It is this that if you're in Christ, you have experienced. It is this that you could experience today if you've never made that choice. That regardless of those things which present themselves to you in this life, if you have come to a personal knowledge of God through belief in Jesus Christ, you have been ushered into the promise of an inheritance which is incorruptible and which is undefiled and which cannot fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And that's worth blessing the Lord. As we read before, not a thing in the world can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus from Romans 8. And for this, let us truly be thankful. In light of such great love, in light of eternal redemption, whereby we are lifted out of our circumstances and into the context of thanksgiving around the glorious and eternal resurrection that is ours through Jesus Christ, whereby we lived in blessed deliverance from the power of our sin over us, how can we be anything but thankful? The words of Helen Lemo 
are just as true as it relates to Thanksgiving as it does to anything else in life. When she wrote those words to the hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May I exhort you, I I hope, and I believe with many this is true, that there's any number of material and physical things to be thankful for in this year. But may I exhort you to make that kind of number two on your list this Thanksgiving. We're going to talk about that tonight. But may I exhort you to allow the things of earth to grow a little, to grow grow strangely dim on this Thanksgiving and to bubble up to the surface first and foremost the eternal realities of where you stand with God through Christ the eternal realities of what you have experienced, of the deliverance from sin, of the deliverance from its power, of the deliverance from its penalty, and one day even the deliverance from its presence. This is the call unto which we are called in Psalm 103. See, because God is merciful and slow to anger, He's quick to forgive. He's removed from us our sin as far as the east is from the west. He has not dealt with us according to our transgressions and that is worth being thankful for. All that is within us to bless His holy name because we rest under the mercy and grace of the God of all flesh because He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust and He loves us anyway. Because he's slow to anger and he will not always chide. He pities us as a father pities his children. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. And he loves us anyway. This Thanksgiving, let us turn our eyes upon Jesus and have that proper perspective then to approach the circumstances within which we find ourselves. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.